many ways, hope is, hope is a matter of getting your perspectives right. And so um, Ray Johnston in his book, The Hope Quotient, tells a story about a family that had scraped together enough money to send their daughter to an Ivy League university. It cost a lot, but for this family especially, it cost a lot. About midway through her second year, she sent them a letter via the U.S. Postal Service. They opened it and it read like this. Dear mom and dad, I know this is going to be very disappointing to you, but I have met a guy. He's about 15 years older than I am. We are in love and we just eloped and I'm two months pregnant. I'm dropping out of school and I'll contact you at some point in the future. I love you, your daughter. At the bottom of the letter, she had said, please turn this letter over. And when they did, it said, just kidding, but I did flunk one class and I need $200. (laughs) And I hope this puts it all in perspective. (laughs) That's what hope is. Hope is getting things in right perspective. Hope is understanding that regardless of the vicissitudes of life I might face today, the ups and downs, the hurts, the habits, the hang-ups, it's going to get better. That's what hope is. It's the conviction that because God is who God is, I'm not going to be left where I am. When we talk about wishing, wishing, we're actually talking about ungrounded desires. I wish this would happen. I wish you would mail me a check for a million dollars. It's ungrounded desires. But when we talk about hope, we're actually talking about something that we have already received evidence of. That is, it's like an engagement ring that I know we're going to get married because I have the ring. Or it's like a voucher for a theme park. I know I'm going to get in because I already have the voucher. A reservation at a nice hotel. That hope is actually, in some senses, part of the very thing you're expecting. And that's one reason why hope in the Bible is such a rich gift that God gives us. That God not only tells us, I've got all these promises in store for you, but God already gives us down payments of those promises. In the songs that we sing, they're down payments on the praise we're going to get to enjoy around the very throne of God in the new heaven and the new earth. The prayers that we pray, they're a form of sweet communion that we'll enjoy face to face with God at the day of resurrection. That this little community of believers is a, it's in, even in spite of our sin and our failures, this little community of believers is a taste of what it's going to be like to be gathered around Zion's throne with the angels on one side and the cherubim on the other. It's just a taste of what God has in store for us. And God makes us enormous promises so we can hope in Him. God has promised you that He will give you the grace that you need. And even when you don't see it, He's already at work delivering that promise. God has promised you that when you're facing trials or temptations, He will always give you a way of escape. God has promised you that he will work all things together for your good, even though you may not see yet how things will work. He's got a plan. And God has promised you that at the day of resurrection, when you cross the Jordan, there's going to be an awesome place for you, so awesome that the Bible struggles to find language to communicate its awesomeness. We live by hope, we, we drink it, we eat it. Life is, 
It's, it's virtually pointless without hope. Uh, even our pets have hope. Am I right? You go away and your dog goes and sits by the front door waiting for you to come back because even she has hope. Even she's living by the hope that you're going to return someday. In the scriptures, we read about hope as an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 6 and verse 10, uh, the Hebrew writer promises, he, by the way, he's talking about the patriarchs of the Old Testament, so Abraham, Moses, so forth. And he says, God is not unjust and God is not going to forget the good work you've done or the way you've loved him. And then he says this, this is our hope and it's an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. We have Moses now. It's our last lesson out of Deuteronomy. We have Moses standing on Mount Moab, also known as Nebo, also known as Pisgah. The children of Israel are lined up down the Jordan River. In both cases, it's only a couple of hundred yards across to the land of promise, promised four centuries before to Abraham. It's hard to imagine what their hearts must have been feeling as they're looking across, realizing now we're no longer 40 years removed as we were from Sinai or 400 years removed as we were from Abraham. It's just a matter of hours when we take the land flowing with milk and honey. As we reach the end of Deuteronomy, I have to tell you that I feel, uh, I, feel I get choked up thinking about it. I feel the sadness um, because of the richness of this book. I do want to say um, that I, I, I've really enjoyed preaching. I've, I've enjoyed preaching it with David Hunsaker too, by the way. And I want to say something. We're one church. So West Campus, Online Campus, uh, 316, East Campus, we're, we're one church. But we, I have had some people say, wait, it's, are we taking David away from West Campus? And the answer is no, 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 no. We're just sharing the pulpit. Some of you have rather excitedly asked me, does this mean you're retiring? <laughs> I just want you to know, if you had a look at my finances, you would know I'm probably 25 or 30 years away from retirement. So... If you like me, that's going to be good for you because I expect I'll be here a while. I hope I am at least. We just want to share the pulpit together because, as you know, David's a great preacher and we're one church. So we're sharing together. But I've enjoyed the series of Deuteronomy. And today we stand on this side of the river looking across in great hope. Now I want the sermon to be personalized. I'd like for you to personalize the sermon. So here's what I want to ask you to do. On the pews, you don't even need this. If you just grab some little slip of paper, there, there should be slips of paper on the pews or at home, just grab whatever you want. Do your phone if you want. It doesn't matter to me. Would you just, while I'm preaching, so we're not going to take a moment to do it now, but just while I'm preaching, would you just dot, jot down a few of the hopes that you're ready to claim from God? If you're younger, you can list it however you want to list it. All the hopes that God has offered us, the hope of I'm going to work it all out. Uh, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you the strength you need. I'm going to be there when you need me. I'm going to give you an escape. You know, if, at some point you reach an age where for you the hope may be, I'm getting ready to cross the Jordan one last time. And maybe the hopeful questions are, what do you look forward to seeing when you get there? Who do you want to meet again? I mentioned this at the first service and someone came up and said, he'd never met his dad. His dad died was on a, a ship in the Second World War. So after our member was conceived, his father was shipped off to the Pacific in the Second World War, and his ship was sunk. So he never got to meet his dad. By the way, I've told this story before, Ron Cooper's story. He found after, Ron's, after his mother passed away, Ron found a whole collection of letters 
that his dad had sent his mother that were in the attic all those years. And so Ron got to meet his father through that collection of letters that he had never seen. He says after first service today, he says, that's the first guy I'm going to look for when I get across the Jordan. Or maybe for some of us, it's, I can't wait to leave this behind. What is it? What are you hoping for? Will you jot it down and jot down something you don't mind sharing with someone because I intend to ask you to share it with someone here in the next few minutes. When we talk about hope, we're talking about how the book of Deuteronomy ends. So let's jump into it. Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah. Pisgah is one of the peaks uh, on top of Mount Nebo, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the whole region as far as the Valley of Jericho, the City of Palms, as far as Zoar. So if you're on Mount Nebo, uh, this is a photograph from Mount Nebo, but the photos just really fail to depict how breathtaking it is. It's like looking off the Grand Canyon. Uh, it was a breathtaking view. And God has taken Moses up there, and it, it appears at least that it's just God and Moses, kind of one last conversation. This photograph probably doesn't do justice to how beautiful the land of Israel would have been 3,000 years ago also, because after 3,000 years, a lot of it has been deforested. Remember, in Moses' day, they had to deal with lions and bears and whatnot. It was a forested area, so it would have been a beautiful land that Moses looks off and sees. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I just want to pause and say, Guys, God is faithful to his promises. It was 400 years back that God said to Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land. And God now has Moses on top of the mountain saying, there it is. You're a couple of days away. But because Moses had sinned, the Lord says, I've let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab as the Lord had said. And I, I wouldn't want you to miss this. He buried him in Moab. It appears from the text that God personally buried Moses. By the way, there was a legend that sprung up from this that's recorded in a book called the Book of Enoch. We don't have that. You don't use that book. There, there are some manuscripts out there. It appears that in the book of Jude, this is made reference to because Jude says there were spirits arguing over the body of Moses when he was preparing to be buried. But God, in this very loving way, personally decides to bury Moses in the valley opposite Bet Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. There are monuments even today on top of Mount Nebo, an ancient church, both the outside, you can see also the inside. And then uh, not too many years ago, someone erected this bronze monument. It's a it's a, it's a snake, if you don't recognize it, wrapped around a pole. And if you recall, during one of the pandemics, uh, that which was caused by the rebellion of the Israelites, God said to Moses, make a bronze snake, wrap it around a pole and hold it up and I'll stop the pandemic. Jesus appears to make reference to this when he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw men to me. Moses was 100, excuse me, <laughs> Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. I just want to pause and make an observation. In Genesis, the 50th chapter, when Jacob died, it took 70 days to mourn. Because in the Egyptian tradition, it took 40 days to mummify a body, and then you mourned 30 days after that. So it was a 70-day period. 
the mummification process, which I won't go into great detail, but it was a matter of uh, encasing a body in salt and lime, and it drew all the moisture out of the body, and then they wrapped it up, and that was, the mummy still, many of them still exist today. So why when Jacob died did it take 70 days, 40 days of mummification, and then 30 days of mourning? But in Moses' case, it was only 30 days. I don't have an answer, but I have a guess, and I like my guess. Hope you do too. I think this signals that the days of Egypt are finally behind us. That at this point when Moses dies, they were no longer connected to Egypt and they wouldn't be defined anymore as runaway slaves. But at this point, and maybe for the first time in their history, Israel was now wholly God's people. When the weeping and mourning was over, Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid hands on him. So Moses had spent 40 years discipling Joshua, and Joshua is now ready. The very next book of the Bible after Deuteronomy, which we're not going to do, not anytime soon at least, is named after this guy, Joshua. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. And then the last three verses of this awesome, awesome book. Since then, so whoever writes this, and we don't actually know who writes it. I'm presuming it wasn't Moses himself who wrote it. Um, but since then, no prophet has risen. He lists three features of Moses' ministry. No prophet has risen like Moses in Israel, whom the Lord knew face to face. So Moses had an intimate relationship with God, a face to face relationship, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do. That is, he was a miracle worker. And then three, he witnessed to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to his whole land. He was a prophet, a miracle worker, and a man with an intimate relationship with God. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Ah, may God bless the reading of the book of Deuteronomy. So Moses has died, but he lives such a big life in the imaginations of the church, of the Jews, even of Muslims today. That Moses is still a man of such enormous influence. And that explains why you can't get away from contemplating the books of Moses, thinking about the, the images of Moses that are in your Bibles or in museums scattered around the world. It's why people all over the world today still bear the name of Moshe or Moisa or Moses or all those names that are associated. It's why uh, many of the laws, the presumptions of the laws in countries like the United States of America are grounded in a mosaic understanding of justice. It explains why the greatest artists have wanted to go back and talk about who this guy Moses is and why you can find some of the most masterful pieces of art devoted to Moses and certainly the most entertaining of movies about our man Moses. And here's why. It's because, as a Hebrew writer sums up in chapter 11, when he's doing that great hall of faith, it's because Moses had the right, he had the righteousness of God. He, he knew what God wanted him to do, and he did it. Here's how the Hebrew writer puts it. By faith, Moses, so remember Moses' life, before I do this, Moses' life is divided into three periods of 40 years each. The first 40 years, he was, he was sort of in line to become a Pharaoh. He was that important. The next 40 years, he was in the wilderness of Sinai raising sheep. I mean, it was a pretty big change. And I just want to say, I suspect that those 40 years of raising sheep prepared him well for his experience of leading Israel. That's not a joke. It probably did. And then Moses achieves the exodus at the age of 80. 
I mean, think about that. He starts leading the people of God when he's 80 years old. That's when most of us are well past retirement. Moses is just starting his ministry at age 80. And he spends the last 40 years of his life leading the Israelites through the wilderness, right up perched on Mount Pisgah on the shores of the Jordan River, preparing to cross over. And this is how the Hebrew writer puts it. It was by faith that when he grew up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. So you didn't know Moses knew Christ, but somehow he did. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because, and this is the hope text, that we end Deuteronomy looking across the Jordan knowing that God is going to be faithful to all his promises. He's been faithful to every promise he ever made you and he will continue to be faithful right up until Jesus Christ returns. You can depend on him. It's not a wish. It's a hope. Grounded in the ring Jesus has already given you as the bride of Christ. Grounded in the Holy Spirit who already dwells within you as the seal of God. Grounded in all the things we do as the people of God. The righteous acts that he bestows upon us. The singing, the Lord's Supper, all these things. These are the evidences of God's faithfulness as Moses was looking ahead to his reward. So we have to say as we finish Deuteronomy that Moses was a great prophet. But we would be making a big mistake if we didn't point out that Jesus is the Son of God. For the Hebrew writer takes Moses' story up and wants us to know that as great as Moses was, he's not Jesus. Jesus goes on top of a mountain with a couple of his disciples and suddenly Elijah appears over here and Moses appears over here and Peter, somewhat bewildered, says, hey, we got all three of them here. Let's, let's worship God. And if you remember, the Lord speaks to Peter and makes it clear, no, it's not going to be about Elijah. It's not going to be about Moses. It's going to be about my son. And so I'll rattle it off quickly. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus has a greater honor than Moses. Moses was the greatest man until Jesus, but Jesus has a far greater honor than Moses. Jesus is the son over God's house. Moses was just a servant in God's house. Moses offered a Sabbath rest at the end of each week. Jesus offers a Sabbath rest that will never end at the resurrection. Moses gave us a high priest, his brother Aaron. Jesus is a high priest who will never step down. Moses gave us a certain kind of hope, a hope for a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus gives us a hope that's an anchor for the soul. Moses gave us a pretty good covenant. I mean, Deuteronomy is an awesome book. Jesus gives us a far better covenant. Moses gave a sacrifice of sacrificial system, bulls and goats and even pigeons occasionally. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice, atoning for all of our sins. Moses had an altar at the tabernacle made out of unhewed stones. Jesus gives us the altar of heaven itself. Moses gave us a tabernacle. By the way, if you go up to Pennsylvania in uh, Lancaster County, I think it is, Dave. I don't know if this is the case or not. There's a replica of the tabernacle up there, and it's really unimpressive. I mean, it's, I don't mean the replica. I just mean the tabernacle is really not. I've got a tent as big as a tabernacle, backpacking tent almost. It's not an impressive thing. Moses gave us that tabernacle. Jesus gives us a perfect tabernacle. Moses gave us the land of promise. Jesus gives us a heavenly land 
to put it in the language of chapter 12 of Hebrews. This is so worth, I can read this text, but I'm telling you, I can't read it good enough. I can't read this text with the kind of emotion that it has, the heart that's in this text. Moses takes him to Mount Sinai with rumbling, thunder, lightning, terror, smoke. Everybody's like, please get us away from this before we die. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says we get. So yes, we believe in Moses as interpreted through Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, remember, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish all the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to give them their full meaning. And then he says, anyone who teaches and practices the words of this law will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. That means this church is great in the kingdom of heaven because we've been teaching and practicing this book. But only through the eyes of Jesus. So we don't fear the rumblings of the smoke at Mount Sinai. We don't go through the terror that the Israelites did instead. I can't do the reading with the emotion it deserves. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched. It's not a physical mountain you've come to. That's burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet or such voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. You, this is your hope. This is your Jordan River. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Or as he puts in chapter 12, since we've been surrounded by a cloud of witnesses like Moses, now that we have Moses' witness, take off everything that slows you down and run patiently the race set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's our hope. So though Deuteronomy was a Bronze Age book, very Bronze Age-ish as you noticed, and though its statutes do not apply to us, its precepts, its spiritual truths are forever. And Jesus shows us how to obey them. This is the Jordan River. This is the southern part of the Jordan River. And you can see that the southern part of the Jordan River is about the size, actually a little smaller than the Stones River in Murfreesboro. Those of you in the online campus, you can look it up. It's the size of a creek when you get to the southern part. This is just north of the Dead Sea. By the way, the day we took this picture is really kind of a cool day. We're standing on the Israeli side looking across. So this is Israel. And this is Jordan, the country of Jordan, I mean. This is the Jordan River. This is the country of Jordan, which until a couple of decades ago were mortal enemies. That shows you how close they were. You couldn't even go to this area 20 years ago because it had minefields to prevent the Jordanians from crossing. And the Jordanians had minefields to prevent the Israelis from crossing. But the day I took this picture, there was a Korean group on a platform. So we're standing on a platform so you can do easy baptisms. There's a platform right over here for people who are Jordanian tourists. And uh, there was a group of Koreans on that platform, and they were singing the song in English, Blessed Assurance. And we ended up kind of doing dueling songs back and forth, singing Blessed Assurance back and forth to each other. And it was just like, sorry, I'm telling you, this is just sweet. 
There they were looking across their Jordan. There we were looking across our Jordan. Two different ethnicities joining the same song, looking across to the promised land that God has in store for all of us. So this is the Jordan River. It says about where the Israelites crossed, and that gives you a sense of really how small it is. But I remember this. When I was a boy, my church had a painting of the Jordan River behind the baptistry, and I've worked for, I've visited a lot of churches, but I've worked for several churches. This is not an uncommon thing to see. By the way, I just, I just want to pause and say, I give you a challenge. Somebody here who cares about photography, here's my challenge. Go find all these churches and take a, a collection of high-resolution photographs of these things before these church buildings are repurposed, torn down. I mean, they're, they're disappearing. Wouldn't it be cool for somebody to have a really large collection. There were actually people who in the late 1800s and early 1900s, this was their job. They traveled around painting pictures of the Jordan River in Church of Christ Baptistries. They were actually a, such a career. Um, but these things sank deep into my soul. And I just remember thinking, as, you know, you would sit there week in and week out and you would see the Jordan River in front of you. And it just became a, a symbolic of like a hopeful symbol or an icon of sorts of, you know, what God has in store for us. By the way, this is the War Trace Church of Christ. I found this online, interestingly. And then when you pay attention to what the artists, the musicians, the others have done with the concept of Jordan, think, think about the songs we sing. How many songs? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, shall we gather at the river? To Canaan's land I'm on my way. There's Beulah. No, she's not a hairdresser. Beulah is a Hebrew word that means married. It's from the book of Isaiah where God says, I will marry the land one day. I, probably half of you have never even heard the song. I've reached the land of corn and wine and all its riches freely mine. You remember that song? Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. As on the highest mount I stand, it's looking across and I see what God has prepared for me. All, the, all these songs, all this about the Jordan River, that uh, the third verse one of my favorite verses of any songs, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Bear me through the swelling current and land me safe on Canaan's side. All our, you know what all of it has in common? You know what all of this has in common? Here's what it all has in common. It looks nothing like the Jordan River. <laughs> And you know what that tells you? It tells you that they're not really looking at the physical Jordan. They're bringing their hopes and their aspirations. That we're saying, I've got my own Jordan to cross. And by God's help, I will safely reach the other side. That his promises are secure. That I can hope in him. That I can trust him. That when he says to me, I will work all things together for your good, David, that he means it. And though I may not see right now how he's going to work it out, I trust that he will. And I'm 60 years old, so I can look backwards now and see, oh, yeah, he did everything he promised. That's what the Jordan offers us, that, that land of corn and wine, as Beulah says, that land of milk and honey that land where the kids are going to grow old, where the, the, the virgins are going to come out playing their, their, their guitars and dancing, where everybody's going to have more babies than they know what to do with, the land where before you can actually finish 
harvesting. Somebody's going to be stepping on your heels planting. That's the land we're talking about. That's what they must have been thinking when they stood there on the, vo- the verge of Jordan looking across and knowing God has brought us here and he's not going to leave us here. So Deuteronomy ends with this, this crazy story of hope. I want to ask you to do something. Um, let me say this. Let me put it this way. Regardless of where you are, each of us is in some way or another standing on the verge of our own Jordan, some decision you have to make, some hope that you need to claim, some promise of God that's unfolding in your life, some hurt, some feeling of betrayal, and you're really asking God, hey, get me across this Jordan. I love C.S. Lewis, but I've never really been a big fan of Narnia, just for whatever reason, the fantasy stuff never seems to connect with me. But in Lewis's last, in the final battle, the last, uh, the last volume in the Chronicles of Narnia, he tells right towards the end of this book, he tells about the, um, the children who, remember the story, they escaped this world. So World War II, a lot of children were sent away into the countryside during the Second World War because the Germans were bombing England, the city. So the parents to protect their children were sending their kids out. And the kids fall through a wardrobe and end up in this fantasy world called Narnia. And on and on the story goes. And right in the last episode, they, they, they win their final battle. And as they win the final battle, they, they become sad because they realize they're going to have to go back to the old world. Aslan is the lion. He's, he represents Jesus in the story. And he asks them why they're sad. And they say, well, we, we know where we're going back. And Aslan explains to him, well, not this time. Unbeknownst to you, there's been a terrible train wreck, and you're staying here now. Here's how he puts it. He says, now you're in Narnia, and the term is over, and now the holidays have begun. The dream is ended, and this is the morning. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. When we cross the Jordan, everything we've experienced this side will only be the title page and the credits. The real story begins in the promised land when God brings to fruition all those promises that he made to us and you can be sure that he will. This is the last in the series. We're gonna do something different in the fall, God willing. If you will humor me for a couple of minutes, I'd be really honored. I want to ask if you'll just pray over the hopeful statements that you made on your slip of paper. If you want to do it alone, that's fine. Just tell the people around you. I'll do it privately. But I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you for two minutes. That's all you got, two minutes, to just group up with folks who are sitting next to you. If you're comfortable, share one or two of the hopes you have. And then in your little group, just pray for each other. And say, Lord, whatever the Lord puts on your heart, pray that. Lord, 
make me more hopeful. Let me trust you better. Lord, bring this soon. Maranatha, come Jesus, and, 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 and let's get this thing done. Whatever it is, we take just two minutes and pray with the people who are around you, and I'll call your attention back in just a couple of minutes. Okay, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. You can finish up after the service. If, you're, if it's going strong, just finish it up right after the service. In fact, during the invitation, it's okay to go back to the back. Those of you who are online, you click a Zoom button, you can share with each other. I think I should have said that I didn't think to. Daddy moved into um, the Stones River Manor uh, last month. My dad and my stepmother, my, his wife, feels awkward calling her stepmother. I was 40-something years old. I did their wedding, Daddy and um, Mary Sue. And, uh, you know, Stones River Manor is a great place. Actually, it was started in part by North Boulevard members so many years ago. And they like it there, too. Um, but it's a big adjustment. Those of you who have moved into long-term health care facilities or maybe you've helped parents move into long-term health care uh, uh, facilities, you understand this. We were visiting Daddy, uh, Mary Sue, uh, I don't know when, uh, last week or sometime, and um, he was talking about, you know, he's, he's getting used to it, he's adjusting, wants his old bed back, got to figure that one out for him. But he did, he said, uh, he said, now, a guy named Brian Monroe, um, Brent Beckham, Jim McDermott, he said, they all came out and did a worship service for us last week. And he thought I knew that. I didn't. According to my dad, and I just have his word on this, it's the first in-person worship service we've been able to have at Stones River Manor since the pandemic. And he said, you know, I, was, uh, I think I'm paraphrasing you right, Daddy. He said something along the lines of, you know, when, when I got to worship again with your people, I knew I was going to like it here. It just gave him hope. That I, I know who's still God. I don't have any doubt about that. I may be standing on Jordan's stormy banks, but I know where I'm going. We're all standing on Jordan's banks, but we know where we're going. You know, Abraham Lincoln was shot on April 14th of 1865. He was moved next door to a hotel. He had been at a theater. Nine hours later at 7.22 a.m. on the 15th, he died. Edwin Stanton was the Secretary of War, and he was in the room, and others have reported that when they said, uh, mark the time, 722, that Stanton made this remark. He said, now, speaking of Lincoln, he belongs to the ages. Well, Deuteronomy's over, and Moses now, for me, belongs to the ages. But I'll end with the same text with which we began. Moses gives you this challenge, North Boulevard, online, wherever you are, this is our challenge. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Let's stand up and sing.